Happy Friday to you, and welcome to the inaugural edition of Med City Beat's Rochester Rundown. Over the Fridays to come, expect news briefs on the top stories of the week, our picks of the top events in Rochester each weekend, occasional in-depth pieces from editor and founder Sean Baker, and more types of content that'll change as the seasons change here in Rochester. On today's rundown, Sean has a report on the opioid epidemic and Mayo Clinic's role in stopping the crisis. We'll hear from one of the clinic's top voices in pain management. There's also lots of local shows to get to this weekend. I've got a bluegrass band you won't want to miss. I'm Isaac James. It's Friday, January 24th, 2020, and let's get to the news. Mayo Clinic will pay for three new Rochester police officers to be stationed at St. Mary's Hospital after the agreement between Mayo and the city was approved at the city council meeting without comment Wednesday. Mayo will commit just under $500,000 annually to the new positions. The agreement is similar to the one between RPD and Rochester Public Schools, which created school resource officers at schools across the district. RPD Captain Jeff Stilwell called the agreement a win-win for the clinic and the department. Day one for the new officers is slated for July 1st. Kemp's announced it will be closing down its milk processing plant in Rochester effective June 30th. 125 jobs will be eliminated as a result. Kemp's had operated out of the Associated Milk Producers Incorporated, or AMPI, facility at 700 First Avenue Southeast for more than 60 years. AMPI ceased production at the site at the end of 2019, affecting 75 workers, while also announcing plans to put the 3.3-acre property up for sale. The move does not affect the workers at Kemp's Ice Cream Processing Facility on North Broadway. Students at the University of Minnesota Rochester will have another housing option come this fall. The university says it plans to house about 40 students at the recently built Residence at Discovery Square in the southwest part of Rochester. Building community manager Kimberly Foss said only one floor of the building will be reserved for student housing. The rest of the 134-unit complex will remain available for general leasing. And finally, one of Rochester's biggest hotel projects to date is nearing completion. Hotel Indigo, the new boutique hotel in the former Holiday Inn building on South Broadway, is officially open for tenants. That doesn't mean construction is finished, however. The grand opening is still set for April, when the hotel's new restaurant and sushi bar will be finished. All these stories and more, like Rochester's Youth of the Year and Seven Ways to Beat Cabin Fever, are online now at medcitybeat.com. The opioid crisis has ravaged through America, affecting big cities and small towns alike, and Minnesota is no exception. Hundreds of people continue to die each year here from opioid-related causes. Looking back at 2000 to 2017, the most recent year for which government statistics are available, opioid-involved deaths increased a staggering 681 percent, with 422 Minnesotans losing their life to overdose. To understand what exactly these drugs do, how we got to the point of this being an epidemic, and what Mayo Clinic is doing to combat the issue, we bring in MedCityBeat editor Sean Baker. Sean recently spoke to Dr. Helena Gazelka, a leading expert in the field of pain management. Sean, how did this become such a large problem, both here and across the country? Well, Isaac, there's no easy answer to that question, but as Dr. Gazelka explains it, it started with this notion in the early 1990s that patients should have their pain well-controlled. The intentions were great, she says, but as we know, this noble idea that we should take control of our fifth vital sign led to a culture of expectations. That's when something hurts, there's a pill to take care of it. And then those pills started to become more and more available. From there, it became so second nature to prescribe or take an opioid that we as a society never really question what the long-term effects may be. 
You couple that with what we learned later, that some of these major companies like Purdue Pharma, which made billions on the drugs, were deliberately deceiving doctors about the risk of opioids. And the result was that these pills began winding up in the hands of people who should never have had them to begin with. So let's back up for a second. What is it exactly that makes these drugs so addicting? Well, opioids are medications related to morphine, which is directly derived from opium poppies. So they've been around for thousands of years. And as Dr. Gazelka explains, they are structures that actually bind to certain receptors in the brain and spinal cord. And so they're important to neuromodulation, in particular pain modulation. And of course, these drugs work on the dopamine system and influence the reward system, making them habituating. It's also important to note that when we talk about opioids, these are medications like Oxycontin that can be prescribed. There are also cheaper versions out there that can be found on the street, notably heroin. That's what helped drive the second phase of this crisis in the 2010s. With so much awareness now of the risks of opioids, do we know why their use in the clinical setting is so widespread? It is interesting. I talked to Dr. Kazelka about that. There is a recent study out there showing that about 9 out of 10 patients who received opioids may have chosen an alternative course of treatment if they had known it was available to them but few ask their providers. Here is Dr. Gazelka explaining why she thinks patients are sometimes hesitant to speak up. I think we still live in a culture where we want to be good patients. I sort of feel that way when I go see my physician. You know, I'll do what he tells me to do, even though I'm a physician as well. I think that people um, trust their physicians and their providers to give them their options. And if, if the provider says, this is what you've got to take and this, this is what will help you, I think they're accepting of that. Although we are seeing a lot uh, more verbalization and outspokenness, I think, from our patients, which is great that they're advocating for themselves and doing more reading. I also want to mention that in 2017, Mayo did undertake a large project really examining how they were prescribing opioids. And what they found was that there were really no set internal standards. Essentially, that meant some patients were being prescribed varying degrees of opioids, and it was really dependent on the providers, not necessarily the patients or the diagnosis. I understand Mayo has taken some steps since then to put into policy how it handles opioid prescriptions. And what kind of effect has that had? That's right. They have since adopted a new set of guidelines system-wide. And as Dr. Gazelka explains it, the results have been noticeable. Here she is again. And so we set out to um, create guidelines that were patient-based. So, you know, the needs of the patient come first is the model of the Mayo Clinic. We want to treat patients' pain, but we also want to do it within a reasonable standard. So we looked at the diagnoses, how painful those are, how much medications patients have historically had to take for those same diagnoses or surgical um, interventions, and then we wrote guidelines. And we have actually, in many of our surgical practices, managed to reduce our opioid prescribing by over 50%. And that's just not a number we came up with from somewhere. We found out, before we made guidelines, the patients were not using 63% of the opioids that were prescribed to them uh, after surgery, for instance. And so clearly, those are pills that were going into medicine cabinets and staying there or finding their way to someone else, perhaps. Um, so we estimate that um, with those calculations, we're saving a million five milligram oxycodone pills a year from the streets of Rochester. Wow. Just to repeat that, saving a million pills from the streets of Rochester every year. Can you give us an example of a time when, perhaps before the guidelines took effect, that a patient may have been prescribed opioids that today they would not be? One place Dr. Kazelka told me where there had been significant overprescribing is in the case of teenagers having their wisdom teeth pulled out. She talked about examples where her own kids had theirs removed at Mayo, and they were prescribed between 30 and 40 pills each. In reality, though, it's likely most teens will be just fine without them. Here she is again. And we know from studies that 
that it's not necessary to give opioids in that situation, that most teenagers will do just as well with Tylenol and ibuprofen as they will with an opioid, and the risk of having an opioid before the age of 18 is not insignificant. Now in our interview, Dr. Zelka also made sure to emphasize that opioids can still be effective in a lot of cases. Think about after a major surgical procedure. It all depends on why you're taking the opioids, and also it's about knowing the risk before you take the medication. You were telling me earlier that Dr. Gazelka has been called on to speak about pain management, both at the state and federal levels. What did she tell you about that experience? That's right. She's been to both Washington and St. Paul to speak about the opioid crisis. And most recently, she was appointed by Governor Tim Walz to the state's Opioid Epidemic Response Advisory Council. I asked her what her message has been to lawmakers. Here's what she told me. I think our primary message to lawmakers is that opioids are not bad medications. They're really important medications. That's why we named our program here the Opioid Stewardship Program, because stewardship inherently um, presumes that what you have is valuable and you need to guard it and use it wisely. And opioids are amazing medications. They've been around for thousands of years. They'll hopefully be around for thousands of more years for appropriate use. So there are people who need them, so we can't out-legislate them. We can't try to get rid of them, per se, but we want to use them appropriately. So it's kind of finding what, are, what is the right drug for the right patient at the right time. When it comes to addressing the opioid crisis, Dr. Gazelka added that it will take a response from the entire community, police, the school districts, the nonprofit sector, to really form partnerships that can hopefully save lives. And it's that work, both in the hospital and in the community, that makes her confident that progress can be made. Before you can fix something, you have to acknowledge that it's an issue. All of America knows that opioid uh, use and the opioid epidemic is an issue right now. And there are so many um, great people with great ideas on what we should do to try to work on this problem. And I think that um, I'm optimistic that, it's, that it may take some time, but that we can move forward and um, come to a better place than we are today. Again, that was Dr. Helena Gazelka, chair of the Mayo Clinic Enterprise Opioid Stewardship Program. Thank you, Sean, for joining us on the program today. It was my pleasure. Lastly, on the rundown, here's a few events we're excited for this week, presented by Riverside Concerts. See Alash, the Tuvan Throat Singers, in Rochester Civic Theater's Black Box, presented by Riverside Concerts on Saturday, March 7th. If you have an event you'd like to be considered or know of new Rochester music coming out, shoot me an email at isaac at themedcitybeat.com. First up on our list, it's Minnesota Bluegrass Quartet Barbaro taking over Little Thistle Brewing this Saturday with local support from folk act My Grandma's Cardigan. Barbaro's new record is Great Northern Bluegrass, and My Grandma's Cardigan will complement nicely with their laid-back and pure delivery of fresh folk music. Music starts at 8, and it's free for everyone. Please welcome to the stage, Lewis Black! If you're looking for laughs instead, stand-up comic Lewis Black is coming to Mayo Civic Center's Presentation Hall Friday at 8 p.m. He sold out theaters like Carnegie Hall, the Lincoln Center, and the Richard Rogers Theater. That's where Hamilton debuted on Broadway, folks. Lastly, we've got ourselves an abundance of free acoustic shows this weekend. We've got our eyes on three shows Friday. Minneapolis singer-songwriter Wayward at Thesis Beer Project, Rochester's Amanda J. supporting her new EP Blue at St. James Coffee, and Peter Klug with his blend of rock, country, and everything in between at Forager Brewery. Tomorrow, catch up-and-coming Rochester country artist Tessa Stites at Cafe Steam. All shows are free and open to the public. That's all on the rundown for this week. Thanks for listening to the first edition of this podcast. 
If you liked what you heard today, the best way to support MedCityBeat is to become a member. Become a part of quality local journalism at MedCityBeat.com slash membership. Stay warm and have fun digging out from the snow we've had all week. I've been Isaac Janes for the Med City Beat. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next Friday.